This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company who I've used for well over a decade now and who are reaching out to you guys, the audience, to offer you 15% not only off one purchase, but an ongoing 15% that will only ever be trumped if something is even for sale for a higher discount than that 15%. I'm going to give you that discount code in just a moment, but I want to talk about another product and showcase that, and that is the AMP, which is the All Missions Pack. So what they've done with this, they've taken an extremely comfortable backpack, you know, hiking quality with some incredible webbing and straps to really even out that load, but they've added what they call the gear set. I think this is extremely pertinent for us because we are jack-of-all-trades, master of none, and we're not just a firefighter, a police officer. You're a father, you're an athlete, you're a hiker, you're a gun owner, whatever it is that you use. And so each of these sets can be added to the pack or taken off. So for me personally, I have the Shove It kit, which allows me to put in brush gear and actually slide my helmet in there if I deploy on a brush fire. Uh, there is a med pouch, which I think doubles very well for a wash bag. Again, I snap it on if I go to the station and then I can remove it for the next two days when I don't need it. So it allows you to have one backpack that's extremely versatile. There's also an element where if you do have weapons, you're going to the range, you can have a short barrel rifle in there. There's a concealed carry pocket. So extremely versatile all around one specific backpack. So the discount code for this and anything else on their site is SHIELD15, S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5. And as I said, that will get you a discount over and over again if you go to www.511tactical.com. Welcome, guys, to episode 311 of Behind the Shield Podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week I'm extremely excited to welcome on the show educator, speaker, and author Passy Salberg. Now, Passy is originally from Finland, where he grew up in a family of teachers and then became an educator himself, then found himself traveling to America, currently lives in Australia, and really got a global perspective of what was working and what was not working in different areas of education around the globe. So he began to do talks, began to write books. His most recent one, Let the Children Play, is the one that I read prior to this interview, and I personally, as a father, um, as a, as a parent who has tried to be very involved with my son's school, um, have observed some things that we do very well here and some things that I think we could do better. And as with the prison systems in Norway and the drug policy in Portugal, topics that we've covered in the past, I think that much of what Passy talks about really brings the solutions to some of the problems that we're having in the UK, in the US, Australia. And I think we can do it better. And that's the whole point. We want our children to be educated. We want them to be inspired. We want them to want to go to school. And I don't think there's any better time than now when so many of us are now homeschooling our children. So this is a great time to reflect. Please take the time to listen. I think there's so much great information out there that, that empowers us as parents, empowers our schools, our teachers to just start questioning some of the ways we do things, some of the history behind those ways, and how we can learn from other systems, other countries, and improve our own. So before we get to that interview, as I always say, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this podcast on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback. I love reading your feedback and then leave a rating. The five-star ratings really do make us more and more visible for people looking for a podcast like this. And as I said, this is a free library. So it's for you, the listener. Use it personally, use it in your department. And all I ask in return is just to help share. The more people that hear these incredible stories, including Passies, the more positive change we're going to make in the world. 
So that being said, I introduce to you Passi Salberg. Enjoy. So, Passy, I want to start by saying thank you so, so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast. Well, thank you very much, James. It's my, my pleasure, really. Right. So, very first question. Where are we finding you on planet Earth today? I just woke up in uh, in Sydney, Australia. This is where I live now. I've been here a year and a half. So, this is a beautiful sunny morning uh, in, in the... Um, in the May morning when we are heading towards the winter here. But it's not that much of the winter compared to where I come from, which is Finland. Yeah, perfect. Well, let's talk about that. So I'd love to hear about um, you know, where in Finland you were born and what your family dynamic was like, what your parents did. Yeah, I was born a long time ago in the northern part of uh, Finland um, in a small town called Oulu, where my parents, where my father was a teacher um, and my mother was a teacher actually as, as well. And we moved um, when I was about two years old to a small village uh, about uh, 100 miles south from Oulu, but still very, very much north where I was raised in a family of uh, teachers living actually in a, in a village primary school. So education has been a big part of my life ever since. Right. Now, in one of your talks, you mentioned about your, your grandfather and how he came to the U.S. Yeah, I have a I have a kind of interesting connection to the United States. My grandfather, my father's father left um, uh, Finland, like many, many others uh, in Scandinavia in 1914, just before the war and uh, went to New York, settled down in, in New Jersey and uh, got a great education in in. Um, Brooklyn, I guess it was, um, and then happened to come back when Finland became independent in 1917. So he he returned back just to see uh, his father and some relatives in 1920s, and then met uh, met his wife, my grandmother, and never never returned. But he was a he was an American citizen until until really the Second World War when um, uh, when he decided to to give the citizenship away so that he could stay in um, stay in Finland. So so that's that's my connection to the US. Actually I have uh, his grandfather was another amazing person. He he traveled in 1839. He left Helsinki and um, went all the way across uh, around South America to uh, Alaska that is now of course the part of the United States, but that time it was part of Russia and Finland was part of Russia as well. So he he went there. He was a uh, uh, passionate natural scientist and medical doctor, and um, and he he was uh, uh, he was curious about the nature and the bugs and the birds and and others. And I guess you know when I look at my my past, that I probably got much more from uh, those uh, my grandfather and and great great grandfather than actually from my parents uh, regarding this. Uh, kind of a tribe that I have internationally to go from one place to another that, that among many other places uh, took me uh, here in Australia a few years ago. Yeah. And I think it sounds like the curiosity side is probably something you got from them too, trying to look outside the, the box as it were. Absolutely. Yes. All right. Well then I know obviously Finland is, is more of a, a Northern um, country. What did your kind of sports and athletics look like when you were in school? 
Well, you know, if you grow up in, in a environment where I grew up, it's a little bit like asking Canadians, uh, what sports did you do when you were young? There's only one answer, that, and that's that's ice hockey. I, I used to do a lot of uh, all kinds of winter sports because that was really the thing uh, thing to do. That time, they were not really indoor facilities for doing something like basketball or, or anything else. So it was ice hockey um, and football in the summer. But I was doing a lot of sports, uh, riding my bicycles. I still do. But I was a passionate uh, cyclist that time as well. With my little bike, went all, all over the place. So, but my my the best memories are of course from you know playing ice hockey outdoors in the middle of the winter when it's really cold and you can be together with uh, with your friends and just play hockey. Yeah, that's funny. I think every single Canadian I've had on the show so far has said the same thing. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, then what about career wise? So you had parents that were both teachers. Were you already planning on teaching when you were still in school? No, I didn't actually realize that very much until I had been, you know, teaching a few years. And uh, and of course, you know, in in Finland, if you decide to become a teacher, it's not a, such a question that it is in the United States, for example, where the common reaction would be that so you didn't really figure out anything better to do <laughs> because in you know back home if somebody somebody wants to become a teacher it's like a, it's like a noble thing and 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 the question that why did you become a teacher was not really as often as it is in in many other countries but of course afterwards now when i think about it that you know being born and raised basically in a in a, in a school building living in the school building and having 100% of your time surrounded by things related to school and teaching and learning and then having parents who who do that for profession of course it it left a kind of a positive mark in me when when i started to think about what to do in my life but you know my my first love really was um mathematics and science and this is the natural sciences physics and chemistry and all those things that you can see around and that's of course something that i had no idea where this comes from until i i studied a little bit about what my all my ancestors had been doing and so full of uh, you know my father's side of family is full of these natural scientists and biologists and and others uh, who had been traveling around the world 150 years ago and and so afterwards when i when i Start, started to think about how did I ended up doing what I do. Uh, the answer was easy: that that the the environment where I was raised raised as a child, a very positive one. That I, I really love that you know having space and you know having a privilege to not just go to school but live in a school. Uh, and then on the other side, through the DNA, this passion to look at the nature and environment and and mathematics as well so it took me to study mathematics and 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 naturally you know if you can combine the the passion and love that you have into one to teach mathematics and science that's exactly what happened to me and and uh, that's how i ended up in uh, you know doing what i'm doing right now yeah so i know you mentioned in the in one of the conversations that uh, the Finland wasn't always, you know, didn't have all the answers when it when when it comes to education a few decades ago. So when you were at a school age, which is about, you know, I'm assuming around four or so years ago, um, what were you seeing there? And then and kind of walk us through Finland's actual evolution in their education system. 
Well, you, you know, my own school, memories from school, uh, refer to very traditional schooling. Uh, and it, it was not always fun. I think I, I, I guess my primary school was somehow fine and okay. My father was, for, for a couple of years, he was my teacher. And then, then when, I, when I moved to middle school and high school, I think schooling for me became more and more kind of a place that I didn't quite understand why we are doing these things in a way um, we were doing very traditional things teachers teaching and you had to remember stuff whether you liked it or you were interested in that or, or not so you know one thing that really pushed me to to teach in the end was the my, my, my personal challenge that can I, can I do this teaching better than my own teachers. And I remember thinking sometimes when I was in high school like this, that I, there must be a better way to teach English or mathematics, not so much mathematics, but many other things like foreign languages, for example. And, um, you know, this all said that the, uh, the school system um, and the, the culture of schools, teaching and learning was very traditional all the way until, I guess, when I entered school as a teacher, myself somewhere in the in the late 1980s uh, when you know being a teacher 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 myself um i was a kind of a i don't know if a if a word rebel would be uh, a, a right but you know to, together with some other young teachers we were challenging many of the traditional things like why do we speak so much why do we why don't we give uh, students a voice or never ask them what, whether you're interested in these things or how would you like to learn this? What are the things that you want to learn in school? So um, I, I guess that the, the Finland's education system began to open up a little bit to these new ideas uh, when I just entered the school and, and certainly in the, in the early 1990s when many other changes happened around like the the Soviet Union collapsed and the, the whole kind of a daily reality in Finland uh, changed completely that we didn't we didn't have the Soviet Union anymore there uh, and then we started to you know seriously think about being part of the European Union and many other things that that maybe this is a good reason also for asking these fundamental questions in the school as a teacher but how do we teach and, and what is the role of the students and how do we run the schools? What is a place called school? How, how, how children learn and what is knowledge? You know, all those basic fundamental things came into the surface of the daily work and lives of uh, teachers. And I was really privileged to be part of that time when when this happened. And, and that was the, that I often say, that was the one of the important parts of the history of Finnish schooling. Yeah, and I think that that's an incredibly important point to make is to look at something. I and mean, before we started recording, I talked about Portugal, for example, and their drug policy and, and them completely reinventing that and having incredible success is getting to that point where you realize doing the same thing over and over again isn't working and having the humility to say, we need to take a step back. We need to look at, you know, what we're doing, maybe find other places, countries, whatever it is that appear to be doing it better and maybe start implementing some of those ideas into our own system. Absolutely, yes. And the and the United States, of course, for me has always been a part where I have found the most interesting and 
um, and polled ideas for education. I remember when I did my when I studied to be a teacher in this was at the University of um, of Helsinki, and then when I did my PhD a few years later, you know, most of the literature I read, most of the books and articles were written by the the people in the United States. And I came to US often, um, and I, I vividly remember, you know, this was a time when the internet was not really that well developed yet. Uh, you, you, you couldn't have the library access or journal articles available in the internet. But, you know, I, I came, I went to the United States at least once a year. With I left Helsinki with an empty suitcase, and I came back with my suitcase full of uh, books and, and resources and materials, and, and they were all American ideas. And I was not the only one. There were a lot of other people who did the same when they went to conferences in the U.S. or or spent time at the universities. We always came back with the with the new ideas and and novel thinking about education and schooling. And you know we we, we made the best use of those uh, those things. Not everything, but. Um, you know, having such a rich collection of thoughts and ideas from uh, from American colleagues was absolutely critically important in you know thinking about taking this Finnish education journey journey forward. And you, you know, this is something that I often think about: is that the U.S., the United States, was actually from the education perspective also built on foreign ideas from Germany and Europe in the 19th century and uh, 20th century as well but the but the United States o- overall has been much uh, very different in, in this respect of you know learning from others and seeing what the others do uh, than uh, Finland or the Scandinavian countries overall and that's why I often say that you know big reason why why we Finland came up in um, in the year 2000 after uh, 20 years ago as a as a high performing successful education system is exactly because of these these new ideas that we were able to uh, transport from the US and think about them and consider them in our own context and then say that you know we don't need to reinvent the wheel again you know this is a great idea let's do something about it and this this rarely happens in the united states anymore uh, because everything is thought to be discovered in america and and that's kind of an exchange of of ideas when it comes to education and thinking about what works and what do we need to do is something that um, is very different today than it was um, uh, earlier in the united states and finland as well yeah, I remember a story, and I, I might have the president wrong. I think it was President Roosevelt, but after World War II, they were posturing to put universal health care here in America, and they ended up putting it, I believe, in Japan, and, and I think it was Germany as well. But then um, the, I think he, he, you know, he passed away, and then the, the, the successor basically got rid of it. And, you know, so obviously that, in my opinion, coming from England, where I think that healthcare system is incredible, if it's supported properly by the, by the people that fund it, um, it, it seems like politics got in the way. Now, you refer to several pioneers in education that were American, and you showed clips of some of them talking in, um, in one uh, presentation that I watched. What were the barriers that these great American education thinkers weren't able to get their ideas implemented into our system here in the U.S. or, for example, say the U.K.? 
Uh, that's a, that's a good question that I think people people who have longer and deeper understanding about these cultures can can answer. I, I've never really figured out, for example, in the United States where I've lived almost ten years in the two different times, and so I, I know something about the U.S., but I still don't understand this particular fact that there are so many world-class, really brilliant thinkers and doers in the United States that are basically ignored when it comes to their advice and understanding and insight into education. Um, Just to mention one, Howard Gardner, um, with whom I had had an honor really to work um, at the Harvard Graduate School of Education a few years ago. Uh, repeatedly said to me that he is uh, he is regularly invited to advise prime ministers and education authorities around the world about education and reforming you know rebuilding education, uh, but not in the United States. He said that that no no U.S. state education authorities, let alone the federal Washington D.C. Um, educators, you know those policymakers have asked him to come and have a conversation about you know what his science and research findings would mean for 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 the United States um, and that you know this list is long that there are there are scores of american uh, scholars and people who have been reforming education influencing education around the world who spend most of their time working overseas and and helping uh, Assisting others, but not in the U.S. And you know, this is uh, this is something that I, I really don't understand. Why is that? It may be that education is more politicized in in the U.S. It's much more politicized than in many many other countries. Meaning that um, these big decisions, you know, who can who can have a word, who can have an influence, uh, are much more decided by po- political figures in a in administration than educators and that's the that's the big uh big thing um and in england as well i often think that maybe it's because of the something to do with this political system where where the countries that have basically just two possible large parties that people can vote red or blue or black and white whatever they are often find themselves in a situation where education decisions cannot be built on the the kind of a previous political ideas because that's that would be dangerous politically to do but in Scandinavia for example if you look at Norway or Finland or Sweden any of these uh, wonderful countries that when you have a multi-party democracy where where there are no no two major parties that rule it's easier to end up in a in a kind of a situation where you can build consensus or think across the the political boundaries and uh, just you know identify good ideas whether they are your own country or somewhere else and then then move on i i, I would say that the the education education is political everywhere but it's much less politicized in in a countries like uh, the nordic countries are than it is in here in australia or or, or Canada, or United States, or UK, or England. Uh, I must say. Yeah, 
And I think it's, it's, it's tragic. And like I said, I come from England myself originally. And I remember as a young boy watching the two sides, as you mentioned, just waving papers and shouting at each other, <laughs> seemingly getting absolutely nowhere. And then, you know, we come, come here to the US and you know, even, even the political, um, elements, the, the, the commercials that they're allowed to have here is nothing but the other person is an idiot. That's it. You know, it's, it's, there's no, not even any content. You don't even learn about what these other people stand for. And I think that it does completely get in the way and, and issues that they are arguing about. I believe you can solve when our nation, our children, whether it's addiction, mental health, violence, I mean, all these elements. And yet there doesn't seem to be a focus of proactively trying to positively affect our, you know, boys and girls. So then they in turn are going to bloom and flourish mostly into, you know, higher functioning citizens. That's right. Right. Well, then I would love to firstly, and then again, generalizing Australia, the, the UK, the US, um, what are some areas that you are seeing like common denominators that you think are, um, creating a negative impact on children's, you know, the, their learning ability, their mental health, um, physical, um, health, all the, all these elements that you're seeing? Yeah, that's a, it's a, it's a great question. I think, I think, you know, the language here plays a, a big role because it's interesting if if you if you take a look at the education uh, thinking and and a kind of a models of schooling in the countries where English is uh, uh, is the first language and often the only language that people speak, they interestingly share many many similar things. In my books and writings, I've been speaking about the global educational reform movement that comes is a kind of a set of collection of educational principles and ideas that are common to um, countries and education systems that interestingly have not been able to create or generate any any positive, uh, significantly positive uh, or successful outcomes. And those, those are often exactly the countries and the systems there that you mentioned. So, so it may be that there's something in the language that it's, it's easy to, it's easy to take ideas or policies or or things uh, from England, for example, and then transport those to Australia and the United States, New Zealand, um, Canada, South Africa, other places where the language is already there. It's much harder to take a, a British idea in education and take it to Norway or, or Finland because they have to be translated. And, and, you know, still people in many other countries, they don't, they, they, even if they can and read and understand English, but they they don't use English in in a way that most people think. Like like many Americans think that everybody understands English, but it's a, it's a global and the best language in the world, which is not true. Uh, but but English is not used in the same way in in different different countries. So so that's why I think it's it's a kind of a interesting that we can see some of those ideas that have been spreading around the English speaking world world and at the same time now when we have more evidence and data from different education systems uh, partly because of the uh, the organizations like OECD and, and UN organizations and partly because the education research has been much more uh, focusing on those things that that you know some things that originally came from places like England or the and, and then have been intensified in the United States like uh, the role of standardized testing 
that in in theory is a good thing, but in practice, when it's implemented, often turns out to be not so great. Or the um, uh, strong accountability for schools and teachers that is often linked to uh, the standardized tests or standardizing teaching. You know, ha- having this idea that. We, we need to have clear and high enough standards for each and every child so that we can make sure that every every child will learn what they need to learn in a school around the world. Um, and, you know, m- many of those ideas that have, that they have been accepted almost as if they were universally true, um, that forms this essence of the, the global educational reform movement that uh, has turned out to be a problematic for for the education systems, outcomes or success, but also uh, has caused a lot of unintended consequences at the level of individual learners and children and teachers as well. Like, for example, uh, most of these countries that you mentioned, the US, uh, England, Australia, here, many others, have had now for several years a kind of a, a chronic issue with the the teaching profession that has turned out to be something that nobody wants to do. Nobody wants to be a teacher. Very few people actually want to seriously, like I did, um, consider teaching as their their life, career, and profession. And it's often, it's not, not primarily because of the pay. It's not primarily because of anything else. It's a mostly because teachers feel they are forced to do things that are no good for for the children or their families or the communities, um, for example, testing children with the standardized, poor standardized tests uh, that have very little to do with the with the children's learning or well-being or happiness or life in, in general. So, so that's, uh, you know, I, I would associate much of this uh, rapid uh, and fluent transfer of, of these often bad ideas in education to the language. Uh, and when we had an internet uh, commonly available for policymaking and, and educators 20 years ago, 25 years ago, it just accelerated the spread of these ideas around the world. And, um, you know, when I teach my doctoral students here or anywhere, I always, I kind of insist them to also go and look at the literature in other languages. It may be uh, maybe French or Spanish or Chinese or or German or Swedish or Portuguese, whatever it is, just to realize that how different the the narrative about the education often is in different countries. Like if I give you an example here in the um, from fr- from the Nordic countries, for example, if you if you're a student here in Australia or the United States and you only read English language literature books and and journal articles you get a very different idea of what's happening in the schools um, around the world than if you for example if you were able to read and understand swedish or finnish or the scandinavian languages and you go what what the people write there that is you know primarily about students well-being and health and uh, and even before the this uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic that it was all about uh, you know happiness and well-being and health and uh, play and uh, you know the role of arts and music and physical education all those important things um, and you completely miss if you are not able to 
understand and, and read the, the other languages. So that's why I think lang- language is ex- extremely important for anybody who really wants to understand the world of schooling to go and look at what's what's happening in different parts of the world. Now it's easy because you can basically Google Translate much of the stuff if you want to do that just to get an idea what's what's happening there. And we could have avoided many of these things that we now see we are kind of stuck in the United States in this standardization, testing, accountability uh, trap. Uh, and the same thing here in Australia and England and many other countries if we had had this luxury of you know, having a broader look at the world and what the other countries are doing. Yeah, and it's it's very interesting with the standardized testing. My little boy is 12 now, and we have what's called the FSAs here in Florida. And he has gone from, from struggling academically to working his way up, where he's kind of mentally caught up now and has been getting A's and B's on the honor roll, they call them here, and then still doing horrendously on the standardized tests. And it really kind of, and, and I asked that the kids, they don't enjoy the testing. I mean, these poor, some of these kids are like eight and they're sitting in front of a computer for four hours taking these tests, which is just ridiculous. The teachers hate the way they have to teach. The parents aren't happy either because of it. So I've yet to find anyone in this group that actually likes standardized tests, yet they've been a part of our education for years. And I, I kind of almost um, parallel it to the cholesterol numbers from 20 years ago where if you had a cholesterol and it was this number, then you immediately get put on, on medicine. And now they've realized that was complete rubbish, complete crab, and that your number doesn't dictate your health. And if you were a perfectly healthy person with good blood pressure and good body weight that happened to have a, a cholesterol number this way, it didn't mean that you were going to automatically get a heart attack. Yeah, that's right. I often say that these standardized tests are often often like measuring your body temperature with a teaspoon <laughs> that it doesn't really it doesn't really tell you much but at the same time i think we need to be we need to be mindful with this conversation about standardized tests because they are i, th- I think that the the standardized assessments are important in order to you know tell us how the system education systems are working but the problem is that standardized assessments in the united states and certainly here in australia are misused. They're used in the multiple purposes that they were never never designed to do. And they often come with the unintended negative consequences that you mentioned as well. So 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 this conversation about the, the question whether standardized tests are good or bad is a wrong question. I think the, the right question is that what would a a good modern uh, high-quality standardized student assessment look like, for example, at the level of the state of Florida or here in Australia, uh, rather than say that we have to police everything. And, and you know, for example, the the, uh, the case of Finland, we often hear these, uh, what I call fake news about Finland, that we don't have standardized tests there. But that's not actually correct because there's a lot of standardized assessments going on but they are they are designed in a way that have a zero stakes for teachers or children or the uh, the schools uh, because they these tests are um, carried out as a kind of a sampling uh, sample based assessments where just like when when we are asking whether the people are healthy in our country or nation or not. We are not testing 
everybody, for example, you use the, the cholesterol thing that we, we are not testing everyone. We are testing as kind of a sample, a three percent of the sample of people. And this is exactly what more advanced education systems are doing when it comes to standardized testing, that they, they take the three percent of the sample of kids. They, they run a high quality assessments that are looking many more things than just less reading and mathematics and science on these children and then analyze the data. And just like in a health, we are saying that, you know, this is what, what the state of health in this particular issue is in the country. Uh, we can say the same thing that, you know, this is how the, the kids in our country are learning. It's a little bit like the, the NIPE, uh, the, the national educational uh, assessment program in the United States that is testing, testing sample of kids, not all of them. And that's a good, that's a good way to um, carry out standardized testing. But just simply saying that standardized testing is a bad idea, it's a, too, uh, it's a too, too fast conclusion, actually. Yeah, and that makes perfect sense. So, it's, so the, the way that you use it in, in Scandinavia as a standardized test is, is a litmus test to, to get an overview of how effective the overall system is doing, but it's not being used to allow a child to move up a grade or to, to send funding to a certain school, for example. Yeah, or the, the determine the quality of schools that I often see in, in different countries like here, for example, that the, the is often media, but, but also the, the, um, the authorities and, and parents are, are kind of a determining, concluding the, how good schools are based on the standardized test results of the kids. And, uh, you know, the basic thing in psychometrics is that, that you cannot, you cannot say anything at all about the quality of school or teaching in the school by looking at the, the standardized test results because the, the test, test results actually reflect uh, uh, so many other things than what the teachers or what the school is doing, um, including the parents' role and the, the family background and the community and many other things. Yeah, and obviously that's another <laughs> entire conversation that I want to kind of in is, interweave, yeah, yeah. because I mean that's right now I think people are being made more aware than ever about their role in their child's education because we're all at home with our children. I think the ones that have always been hand-on are probably doing okay, and the ones that haven't are probably realizing the value of the, the schools they've been sending their children on the yellow bus for the last 10 years. Yeah. Right. So then, um, I want to get to, to play in a moment, but just speaking of standardized testing, cause it kind of, it, it aligns to this next question. Um, we have a lot of reports here where, for example, uh, a lower, um, income area of, you know, a city or, or a county, uh, sometimes doesn't get the same funding as, as other areas. And I, and correct me if I'm wrong. I believe in the book, you kind of address that, that, that there should be, you know, and it makes perfect sense. There should be the same amount of funding, if not more, for areas that are struggling to support those children that maybe don't have as good support at home to make sure that it isn't um, an economic bias when it comes to these formative few years of our school children. So what are some of the things that Finland does to to address some of the poorer areas when it comes to education? Uh, yeah, you're absolutely uh, on spot with the um, uh, with this qu question and and the introduction to this question as as well. Um, and the you know the United States is not the only place. This uh, this country here, Australia, has uh, for many years had a had a f kind of a funding arrangement that is is um, giving more money to actually those schools that would would 
be okay to do with a little bit less. And then there are a lot of a uh, lot of schools, mostly mostly public schools in this country, that are heavily underfunded given the the kind of students and and communities that they serve but you know finland finland is a different story because uh this this was already in the 1970s when when again the uh, the the political political decision was concluded um and it was not easy it was it was a conclusion after a, a number of years of debates and and considerations that since uh Finland is a small country and uh, it doesn't have natural resources like many others have Norway, for example, oil and gas or fish that we, the only thing we have, if we want to, if we want to, you know, catch up the, the other advanced economies and countries is to cultivate our human capital, the people that are in a country. So that's why that's, that's how the, the, the argument for importance to have a, a education, good education system was laid off about 50 years ago. And then, of course, the question is that how do we how do we make sure that all these uh, people, you know, Finland that time had about four and a half, five million people. Uh, how, how do we make sure that all of them are well educated? And of course, this the the, the conclusion was the same kind of a similar thing that the United States ha- had had long hundred years ago about the equality of educational opportunity or even even more than that i think goes um goes back to uh, president jefferson or something even longer than that um and i i think the the basic understanding was that you know if we really want to be successful with every child all the children that was a assumption and requirement in Finland, then we have to understand that some kids and some communities need different type of education or more resources and more support and help and arrangements to support their learning than the others. And the only way to do that is to make sure that the the, the funding, uh, how the schools are funded in different communities is based not on how many children there are uh, or how well they do in a school, as it is in some, some places still, but where they come from and who are they who are these children and the, and this is how the how the system was designed um, or changed in the 1970s and 80s that the schools basically received resourcing and funding based on the children and and parents and communities that they were serving that led then very quickly particularly in the urban areas like Helsinki for example that is the biggest uh, local education system in Finland, um, where they now speak about, they they call it a positive discrimination of schools, which means that the schools within the the city of Helsinki will receive a very different amounts of money based on what type of children they have. There are some schools where vast majority of children are. Uh, non-Finnish speaking or Swedish speaking uh, children, they were born somewhere probably outside of Finland and they speak different languages at home um, immigrants uh, refugees and others and those schools get significantly more funding to make sure that they're able to do good things and necessary things with these kids compared to communities and schools where these characteristics of the, the student uh, makeup are are different. So I think it's critically important 
Uh, and this is well understood in the United States as well. There has been a work going on this this equitable funding in different states um, uh, for for several years already, and it's a big conversation here in Australia now. So it basically people understand, and it's a common sense that you know if you have, you know if you if you have a school where most of your children don't speak English or Finnish, uh, or if you have a school where most of the parents are not employed uh, permanently, uh, or if you have a school where the the level of income in the family income um, is not high enough to kind of maintain a, a steady and, and safe family circumstances, of course you need more, the schools need to do more and schools need more resources, not only money, but they need people, different types of people there. And you cannot do that if the, the schools continue to be funded based on how many how many children they are serving or how good the kids are learning in the school so that's that's why it's absolutely critically important and there's probably no more important thing to make american schools more equitable and when they come more equitable um, meaning that the children's family background wouldn't determined and be the reason for educational failure or plot the success um, uh, so so that's that's a kind of a key to towards the becoming a world-class education system that many people in the United States uh, kind of a desire. And that's at the same time, that has been one reason why Finland has been so successful is to take this equity and equality of opportunity literally and seriously. Uh, and starting from funding, well, the funding is not the only thing, but starting, you know, making sure that the schools get the resources and funding based on who they serve, who are the people there. Um, and then build on all the other things on that. Yeah, well, that's great to hear. And I think that that's something I talk about a lot as, as a, a firefighter paramedic. You know, we see a lot of these homes and I've worked most of my career. I worked in the poorest areas of, of the cities or counties that I worked in. And, you know, you see these these little boys, these little girls and not saying that there's a lost cause, but you can tell that the, the, the chances, the probability of them finding themselves around a a positive path is definitely less than, for example, myself. I grew up on a farm in England. I was I was guided very well mm. towards not being a criminal, not being an addict, not being going into prostitution, you know, gangs, whatever it was. And so the way you break the cycle is again at the schools. And if you invest in these young men and women and their backgrounds, and like you said, if they're immigrants, creating an opportunity for them to learn and, and communicate, then that next generation is gonna is going is going to minimize the amount of people that then take that that stray path when when they have children but if we move funds away from those those children the, you're allowing that cycle to repeat itself which long term for the country is going to cost them a huge amount and is going to increase crime and and it's you know it's it's a completely horrific vicious cycle instead of investing in your communities now so that you know the, the world that our grandchildren grow up in is completely different than the one we are in now. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the um, I often hear people there, especially in the United States, saying that there's nothing we can do, that you can never, you can never fix these uh, underlying inequalities in the society and poverty and, and, you know, those things. But, you know, this is the only thing that we can try. This is the only thing that we know works to make sure that the, the schools where that is basically the only place where all the children will spend significant time of their lives, 
that the schools would be prepared to uh, provide all that help and and support and and necessary things that the kids need. And you know, this is where we where we also come come to the conversation of what is the purpose of the school what is the school for in in a communities like this we cannot we cannot assume that uh, w- when the school is having a lot of children who come from fragile or broken um, home circumstances that they would be able to do similar things in the same way as the affluent school in another neighborhood that the school needs to have strong focus on students health and and health uh, and well-being and and mental kind of a services and support and dental help you know all these things that the many of the kids are missing when they are uh, when they are uh, at home or the, the for for any reason that the the family is not able to to do that and this was this is exactly the thing they thinking that finland and this all the scandinavian countries had already a long time ago that if the kids if the kids don't get what they need at home for any reason whatever it is uh, the school is the place to do that and and rather than send children away from school to be helped or taken care by some mothers uh, the beautiful thing in the Finnish and all Scandinavian systems is that the schools are offering all those services to children every day, everywhere, so that the kids don't need to move and and go to another place um, to be helped. That that's a school that does that. But it's still, you know, in many places. I remember spending time in the United States when I when I was in a conversations like this people say that but that's not what the school should be doing the school is a place for teaching reading and mathematics and some other things and then we have you know the other institutions that will you know provide the other help i said why why you say that you know why the school couldn't be the place where where we we would look at children holistically like a whole child thing not just a you know teaching them something that you know helping them to learn to live a good life and heal themselves and uh, and make sure that the conditions to learn in the first place would be there and there are countries that are doing that systematically and have been doing that for a long time and 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 those education systems are often places where there is more equity and there's more well-being that is becoming a big kind of a measurable thing as well when we are comparing education systems so it's not just a literacy and numeracy but it's also students um well-being and engagement, uh, interest in, in in schooling, that in the future will uh, will uh, make a difference when we are answering the questions that where where are things done in in a good way when it comes to schooling. Yeah, no, I I agree 100. percent And I think if you ask anyone what is who is your favorite teacher, and you, are, you know they say whoever, and then you ask them well, what was it about that teacher. It was probably that their lessons were fun or they were engaging or they took the extra time to help you learn. You know, it was that human element. It wasn't, it was never that they were amazing at algebra. You know, it was, it was the fact that they feel more of a mentor role than a teacher role. That's right. That's right. Right. Well, speaking of enjoying classes, I think it's a good segue then to get to play. So the book you wrote was Let the Children Play. And, and obviously the, the title definitely in itself, you know, speaks volumes about, I think, many of the things that we see wrong with, with the system. And I want to be very clear. I love the teachers. My, my son's teachers are incredible, but the system they work in. So tell me about 
um, you know, the, the importance of play and, and where, again, it's, it's suppressed in some of our school systems around the world. Yeah, the, yeah. Thanks for bringing this uh, this on to this conversation. Um, we we wrote with uh, William Doyle, who is a, who is a father and an author living in Manhattan, um, New York City, uh, about four years ago, three years ago. We started to work on this. Um, you know, the, the the thing that really triggered uh, us to first think about. This topic, and then write it, the, write an entire book about this. Was the the um, notion that we had made in the United States? That was when I when I was living. I was living in Massachusetts at that time. That we realized that there are more and more places where um, and and educational places like preschools and kindergartens and primary schools where children have less and less time to play. We read a lot of statistics and studies and research and we realized that you know this is happening everywhere that that the the time children have to play it when they're in school or in the institutions like like in education was in decline and it had been declining steadily during the last 20 years um and then we went to see that you know what's 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 happening in the families and it's the same same thing that we, we read studies and we spoke to uh, tens or hundreds of parents who regularly say that, yeah, when I was a child myself, I used to play much more than my own children play today. And, that, you know, there are good reasons to, to um, explain why this is happening. Some parents say that it's a safety issue. Some others say that it's a school is taking so much time. Then there were those who say that my children spend so much time with the technology and media and entertainment that they don't have that. They don't want to go out, you know, you name it. There's a lot of things like excuses, uh, how it happens. But then we came into this uh, kind of a fundamental question that what, what does it mean when this is happening, that the kids don't play anymore uh, as they used to play when they were in school? The school is much more serious stuff focused on on performance and learning and competing and accomplishing things and going from one one place to another and uh, and the same thing at home that the the kids are staying indoors more than more than ever uh, they spend less time in the parks and playgrounds and forest and uh, uh, you know the 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 uh, the re- when we realized that what these kids are missing it really we we had to sit down and say that. This is this is a worth you know writing a writing a book to to uh, parents and educators and others that we are we are doing something that is a, ultimately really going to be really harmful for kids and you don't need to spend much time in looking at the research uh, when you realize the 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 benefits that the research around the world really has proven of a high quality play to have on children. Uh, not only for the physical uh, development and uh, and well-being, but also social, um, uh, emotional, and also interestingly cognitive uh, development. That the kids, when they play, when they engage in high-quality play daily and regularly, that they also learn things that they are supposed to learn in school. Uh, I mean, conceptual things, science and mathematics, and uh, this kind of hard stuff that is hard hard to teach better than. If they don't, uh, if they don't play, let alone the the other important skills that we now call 21st century skills like communication and, and negotiation and empathy and problem solving and, and creativity, all those things, they often come with a high quality play. 
So that's that, that's what we kind of uh, said. Okay, let's uh, let's look take a look around the world and see what what is happening not only in the United States but uh, around the world. And we put together the story of the power of play, how how play can benefit all children if we take it seriously. And this is not this is not just a call for schools to let the children play more, but this it's it's a equally targeted to to parents and grandparents uh, when they raise their own children or grandchildren to remember that, um, you know, whereas schooling, of course, is important and what the kids learn in school can make a big difference, but probably even more important for for all the children is the, the time that they spend on high-quality play. And I, I deliberately say high-quality play because not all the play is uh, is giving these these benefits that the research and our book is is uh, is sharing the high quality play is where where we are allowing children to decide you know what to do when we are allowing them to be driven by their own intrinsic motivation and and you know enjoy what they do and use their imagination and come up with the you know go with the flow rather than um you know, compared to play that we often see in, in schools, for example, or preschools where the, the adult, whether it's a, a teacher or somebody else who, who is, you know, putting the limits and saying that this is what you must do and this is what you cannot do. And you have five minutes to, uh, you know, complete this and and you will be tested or assessed in the end. You know, this is not what the, the high quality play looks like. So that's the kind of a, that's the kind of a story of the behind the play. And then, I think the in the end, we really wanted to see what the um, not just the educators because many of the educators think like this. What I've been saying here, that the play is important. It's a it's a part of the children's natural growth and development, and they learn many things and uh, they can develop many of these important things. But then there's this well-being and health part, and the, the you know the group of people that are very important for children's. Uh, lives and families as well are the children's medical doctors, pediatricians, and this was one of the one of the most significant uh, findings that we did while writing the book. That when we spoke to pediatricians in the United States and around the world, they all said the same thing. They all they 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 all were concerned about the the lack of time that children have to play, particularly play free play outdoors. Um, and they all uh, almost using the similar language uh, where talking about the benefits that the play has on children's overall development uh, and growth and learning and and that's why that's why we have this little section in the book called the doctor's orders because the, the pediatricians are actually they have been the most vocal in in reminding teachers and and parents about the importance of play and why is it important. And we can often we can often ignore what the teacher is saying to you, um, even even um, even about your own children, your or, your own child. Uh, you can say that, but you're just a teacher. You know, I know my son or my my children better than you do. But we rarely say when the pediatricians, medical doctors, are giving us orders or advice how to how to raise or or help our children. We, we tend to kind of a, take what the doctors are saying fairly seriously and, and often do it uh, very literally what the, what they are asking to do. And that's why I think 
the, the role of pediatricians and medical and well-being experts and health, health people. Today, when we think about schooling and educating our kids, uh, particularly, the, of course, with this COVID-19 uh, mess that we are living in, in now is that we are listening to medical experts advice i think we should have done that much more earlier but we we need to listen to that very carefully and and hear what they say and then conclude what to do as parents or teachers uh, regarding our own children yeah no i couldn't agree more i think there's there's all elements of health that we need to pay a lot more attention to when it comes to our children but you you just kind of triggered a, a thought um in the books that i showed you before we start recording where one of my other guests is coming up soon johan hari he talks about one of the biggest um, elements of mental health is the feeling of having control over your own life. And it kind of occurred to me that play is that open play, like you were talking about, not like organized sports where you're being shouted at by a coach and, you know, have to do things um, under their control. But the the play that my son actually is very fortunate enough to do, we live in a community and he goes off on his bike for hours at a time with his friends. Um, they get to make the rules. And it's funny because that probably even parallels how the teachers feel in some of these more um, English-American standardized testing environments that they're in. They want to be imaginative. They want to get these kids' you know, imagination fired up, but they have to stay in these parameters of some of these standards that they have to teach. So in, in both of those lanes, the, the creativity, the ability to take control of your own learning, I think is a very, very important thing that a lot of us miss. It is. It is very important, and that's uh, that's what I've seen through my own children as well. And um, and this uh, this is actually something that I understood only after I left classroom teaching as a teacher. That why some some young people were behaving as they as they were behaving. They were basically just asking a little bit more room for their own self regulation and trust. You know, trusting them to do. To do the right things, and that's exactly what comes with the with the high quality uh, play. Just like you said, that you know, just just take your children to the forest or playground if you can do that, and you know, let, let them let them hang around. I think that in in Finland and Nordic countries, we are much more tolerant as parents and educators to accept that you know sometimes sometimes you know accident may happen, and uh, there are risks associated to free unstructured uh, play or or learning um, but you know there are many people like myself and i know many parents who say that you know this is exactly how the kids learn when you when you fall down from the tree and you you hurt yourself that's you probably don't do it again and if you never do that you know if you never put uh, in the situation where there's a where there's a kind of a minor risk of you know failing or getting even getting yourself hurt how on earth you can survive in this life that is full of you know surrounded by risks every day when you when you step out and go to the city you take a risk of you know being hit by somebody or or getting into an accident if you don't know if you don't know how to how to you know behave or control your emotions or yourself in a situation like this that's a, that's a very important thing and that's that's all that comes with the um with a high quality, um, even even risky play. There are some playgrounds here in Sydney now that they call, the, call the, uh, themselves risky, risky play playgrounds where you can <laughs> you can really actually as a child you can hurt yourself like a big time if you if you don't uh, if you don't know what to do. But you know the interesting thing is 
that when you go and see what the kids do, when they when the children realize that you know there's a there's a kind of a danger here that I may hurt myself, they don't they don't go to these things. They can, they kind of a, they have much better ability to judge what is safe and <clears throat> or how to behave safely, what to do not to hurt yourself. That we, we parents often believe. I'm not talking about hundred percent of kids, but most of them. And this is it's the same thing in the school that most of the most of the kids in the school could could you know take much more leadership and ownership uh, about the things that would lead to better learning outcomes and well-being than we actually expect because we or the system is so much afraid of you know mistakes or or failure they kind of standardize and put all the safety cards that are possible rather than you know, providing the safety that is uh, is a kind of a minimum necessary thing for kids to do, and that's why we, you know, we take away this uh, <clears throat> opportunity for kids to self-regulate and self-control themselves and understand, you know, how to how to behave. And that's that's a kind of unfortunate thing. Again, this goes back to this the power of play thing because the good, high-quality play outdoors, unstructured free play, often comes with these elements of of life that the kids can only learn if they go through them by themselves. Yeah. And I think that there's, there's a lot of inter- intrinsic reward from challenging these, these children. And I think that's the, the reason that CrossFit gyms and some of the, the mud runs, you know, the, the, the uh, races where they do all the, the, you know, climbing ropes and climbing over big, you know, military walls and that kind of thing. You see a whole bunch of adults that are basically reliving their childhood and the same playing that they did. So, you know, you look at the Google headquarters where they have, you know, all kinds of games and Richard Branson, I've heard you refer to before, who, by the way, I would love to get on the show one day if you're listening, Richard. <laughs> um, but you know, he, he's, he's always hot air ballooning and, and kite surfing. And, you know, so I think that that's in all of us to suppress that is crazy. And, and even as firefighters on the fire ground, we want to make mistakes in the training ground. So that in the real world, when there's a fire, when there's a life at stake, we've already made those mistakes. And that's what the playground is to me. It's the forging ground to create resilient, intelligent young men and women. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Well, then speaking of, of physical exercise, um, another topic that I've talked about a little bit is is nutrition in schools. So with you traveling all over the globe, I, I personally don't think that we do it very well in America at all. I don't think pizza counts as a, as a vegetable, personally. Um, what have you seen as far as... <laughs> but officially, officially it does. <laughs> it does, yes, according to the research. But yeah. what have you seen as far yeah, as yeah. the impact of good nutrition in focus and, and energy levels and, and a good body weight in, in schools around the world? Well, you know, this is, a, this is kind of a silly topic to t- talk about because you don't need to go further than, you know, ask your mother or grandmother about how important a healthy, good daily nutrition and meal is for you, and you hear the truth that we don't. We we should not ask for more research uh, research on that. But you know, this all said, it's a, it's a kind of interesting that there are <clears throat> there are not many countries or education systems around the world that would would do that systematically to all, all the children. I mean, provide healthy healthy school meal for for all children without without labeling them to um, to their family income or where they come from. Just do it kind of kind of a basic service for children who the school wants to grow up healthy and happy and 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 good learners. 
So, <clears throat> uh, you know, not even all the Scandinavian Nordic countries provide a school, uh, free school meal um, today. And, and so the evidence, you know, we, we don't need to, and there, there is evidence, there are studies in the United States, the Brookings Institute did a study in, in California, kind of a controlled, uh, randomized controlled um, uh, experiment that showed the benefits of healthy uh, meals for children, particularly those who come from um, more disadvantaged uh, families and backgrounds. So, but I, I think that what people often often um, miss in this conversation of school meals and, and nutrition and importance, you know, even accepting that it's important is that um, you know, the school meal can be much more than just, you know, filling empty bellies in a school that is often, <coughs> sorry, for example, here in Australia, where, <coughs> where the, um, where the children are bringing school, uh, food school, uh, within their, in their lunch bags, that it's just a, it's just a, a quick moment to fill your stomach and that's it. The kids don't learn anything about healthy eating, um, the the kind of a table manners, how to have um, have a lunch or dinner with other people, and have a conversation um, about things. Um, you know, most people don't even know where the where the carrot comes from, or or cheese or some other things. So, so I I think that it's important to think about more broadly about the school school meals and uh, and and nutrition as a as a part of the almost like a part of the curriculum in a school that kids will learn while they have the school lunch provided by the school, um, that they learn, you know, all these other things, you know, inc- including the um, um, things related to environment, how our eating um, or, 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 or leaving food on the table, waste, how it's impacting our environment um, or the global um uh, global issues. So, I think you know, if anybody would think about school meals more holistically, again, that is, it's uh, of course it's important for for the health and well-being and learning of children um, in a school. But it's also teaching children what it is, what, what the healthy meal and eating looks like, or what a a situation where <clears throat> where we get together to a social occasion. Uh, regularly every day with other people in our community what does it look like when we do it and use this this opportunity of togetherness uh, around the school um, school meal so there's much more potential there that we can do than people uh, people realize but I think as I, st- as I said earlier that this question whether healthy daily meal is is good for growing young people who are supposed to learn in the school and do all kinds of other things, whether it's good or not. I think that's something that we should not be discussing because everybody knows that that is the thing. And <clears throat> if you don't believe that, just go and just go and take a look at the what children in those school systems like here, what they carry with them to school that they call a school lunch. I wouldn't, no grandmother would recognize that as a kind of a, a good idea <clears throat> to have a, a white bread and uh, sugared liquid and candy bars or something um, or, ch- or chips there in your lunch bag and call that a lunch every day. I mean, every day. And then expect that the kids are able to study and move and learn six hours every day with that. Give me a break. 
<laughs> so so that's why I think I, I think this whole whole school meal thing uh, has to be discussed uh, not just the you know feeding children but teaching educating them to understand and respect uh, what we eat absolutely Absolutely. And obviously, that's why I brought it up. But there's a phrase I love, don't wait for science to prove what you already know. And I think this is a perfect topic for that. And when you think about, let's say, for example, in America, by the time a child graduates, they've been in the school system for 13 years, five days a week for, you know, the, the school semesters. There is so much opportunity to educate children, like you said, like not, not just food, but how, you know, what food is, how to prepare food, having actual home economics classes so that we can address the obesity epidemic. Cause it's heartbreaking seeing some of my son's school friends. They're already like literally a hundred pounds overweight. And, and as a paramedic, I know what that child's going to look like if they carry on down that road. Someone's going to be shoving a, a tube down their throat at the age of 41 and their life is over. So I think it's, it's, it's a disgrace that we as a nation serve those foods. And, and like you said, do not educate our young boys and girls on what nutrition actually looks like and normalizing a good diet, not saying, Oh, this is healthy. This is normal. This is what our diet should look like. And, and I've packed my son's lunch for years and years and years because I want him, you know, I, I can't change the school at the moment, but at least I can change what's in his lunchbox. But I think it's a very, very important conversation. And as you said, we don't need any research. It's just common sense. Yeah, yeah, that's absolutely right. <clears throat> I often hear people saying, certainly in the United States and here, that it's too expensive that we cannot do that, <clears throat> that it costs too much money. Well, <clears throat> you know, in, in India, India is the, the country that has the largest school school meal, school lunch program they feed 100 million children every day every single day in school <clears throat> in finland we have been we are eating every every child 100% of them without any any cost we have done that since 1943 and this is one of the one of the parts of the education system that we would probably let out go last <clears throat> I, th I think i think the authorities and parents would be willing to pay for textbooks and and school bus and you know all kinds of other things but not the school meal because it's so so important, and you know, so it so it cannot be the cost. I think that you know anybody who said that we cannot afford, we don't have money to do that in a country like America, you know, one of one of the wealthiest countries in the world, um, you know, having designing a system where where the school meal would cost probably about three or four dollars a day every day, it's not much, you know, for for the country like this, given the 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 positive benefits and then the 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 kind of a cost that comes afterwards that you mentioned yourself the having uh, having issues with health and, um, and and many other things simply because of lack of good nutrition this would be a really smart smart uh, thing to do i i know that there's they have been the presidents or the first ladies uh, in the united states who have Kind of taking this issue of school meals um, a little bit more seriously, but the next president probably could take this as a promise to to make sure that all the children in American schools would be given a healthy um, healthy school meal every day uh, by 2025. That would be a great that would change the American not only schools and the performance um, and standings in a, in a international league tables. Uh, forever, but also 
probably turn the the health and well-being of American young people into a new positive, more positive course. Absolutely. There's a there's an English chef, Jamie Oliver, who I, th- mm-hmm. I think yeah. he was successful in England, if I'm not mistaken, but he tried the same thing in America and they did a kind of like a reality show following him. But he showed how for the same budget of all the processed crap they were serving, they were able to teach the people that worked in the kitchens in the school to prepare fresh food, you know, clean protein and, and some vegetables and for exactly the same budget. So it's not even the, the money. And I mean, that's the sad thing is if you bulk buy fresh, clean food, it's actually cheaper than probably most of the processed things that they buy. Yeah, I, th- I think you can, you said that you cannot change the, the schools or the country. I think you can probably l- launch a campaign there, maybe in Florida or some, some parts of the States to really start to to do this, you know, think again, because, you know, you know how many, how many children we need to lose in, in terms of the, um, their health, um, or other things before we take this seriously. Don't, don't think like this, just, uh, just launch, launch a good campaign for, for the, the, the school's meals in, in the community, for example, or in the, in the school and, and show people that how, how positive it can be. Yeah. I agree 100%. Well, well, speaking of the pandemic, you touched on before, um, an, an observation that I've had and, and something I talk about a lot in, in my profession, in the firefighters and paramedics and police officers is sleep deprivation because obviously we're working shifts, we're working nights. Um, but in my son's school, the, the elementary in the middle, he's had to wake up about 6 a.m. to go to school. Uh, they start 7.30 ish and then go all the way through till two o'clock. Um, and since this pandemic's hit, he's he's right on the kind of puberty age now. He's 12, about to turn 13. And he's been sleeping for about 12 hours. So clearly, you know, uninterrupted, not, not on his phone before he goes to bed or anything. And so it's kind of made me realize that that age group especially does need more sleep. And I've heard, you know, people talking before about the the... the hours that kids go to school in different countries in the world and even the length of the school day again what have you seen as far as making kids wake up very early to go to school versus maybe different models where they go to school later maybe even having a shorter school day yes uh, I, i don't know how much we have researched about the 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 um the timing when the school starts, but I, I know that in in Finland, for example, there has been some of the psychologists and health experts also have been proposing or wondering whether the school should start a little bit later. Now the school starts about eight thirty or, or nine o'clock in the morning. Just saying that the, the the teenagers, particularly teenagers, they they tend to to like to sleep a little bit later. But I I don't know, you know the counter counter argument there is that why why it should be done that way why not try to make sure that they, everybody would go to sleep earlier just like you you told about your own own son that you know this is exactly they need they need about 10 to 12 hours sleep to grow up healthy and you know learn all those things that are done so <clears throat> i don't know i don't know about that that particular question but the 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 fact you know what is interesting is that when when we look at the the length of school days or number of hours that young people and children are expected to be in school, there's a huge variation from country to country in the world, and um, and that's one one thing that we do know that 
after a certain number of hours in an intense, intensive uh, education and pedagogy that children just can't adopt anymore. They can't. They can never stop learning. And and you know Finland again is one of those education systems. Finland and Sweden and I think Norway as well, where the the n- number of uh, instruction hours weekly for children that are required is uh, relatively less than in the OECD countries or the wealthy countries on average, uh, let alone places like Australia, for example, or the United States, where the kids are spending much much longer in the school. So. You know, I would I would say that if you ask my opinion, I would say that we we probably need to to consider again that how much we expect our children to be actively engaged in in serious learning in the school every day, and make sure that the school days are not not too long or too packed, that or we are, we are not ex, uh, you know asking young people to do. Um, too much. The other related thing is the homework. This homework uh, question that is a huge thing in the United States. Um, that that what is the role of homework and how much do we ask young people to take their time, you know, after their their hobbies and other activities that they want to do in sports or music or whatever they do, and then do hours of of uh, homework. So for me the. The more important thing really is to probably start to consider the the whole question of how important and what is the role of the homework um, in the first place. I'm not talking about, you know, students reading and studying when they are towards the end of the high school, when when the questions of going to college or further studies uh, become active, but particularly primary school and middle school kids. That could could we have a school system where the Children would have a little bit less um, time during the school day when they are really asked to learn and understand stuff like science and mathematics and social studies and other things, and and probably have more time to to play and do physical activity or arts or other things that would be balancing a little bit this, and then really think about the the homework thing that. I, th- I think that the homework should never be an excuse for for adolescents, for example, to stay up late, not go to sleep because there's so many uh, uh, so much homework. So I think I would start it from from that those questions before before really considering what what time of the day in the morning the kids should go to school um, and and try to make sure that there's there's a good balance between high quality uh, high quality sleep uh, daily and the students school related duties and recreational activities at home every day so that they the balance would be there and some of the systems are doing education systems are doing doing this quite well and the others are putting a lot of pressure and and burden on on students in terms of how they spend their times yeah, well, I, I can attest personally. So observational evidence, my little boy um, in elementary school up till fifth grade, so up till fourth grade, was getting a huge amount of, of homework. You know, a very, very young boy at that point. Uh, one point he had two teachers that kind of split 
their time with that one grade, his one class. So they both gave him homework. So he would literally spend a two, a solid two hours at, um, God, what was he now? That nine, nine years old, eight years old, um, doing all this homework. And I saw a huge detriment. Well, in the fifth grade, they announced that they were going to kind of, you know, take, take some of the influence from Scandinavia and other areas. And they were going to get rid of homework in elementary school. And there was, you know, there was resistance. There was people that were for it. I saw him literally do a 180 where his actual schoolwork, where he was engaged at school was so much better because he didn't have to worry about mm-hmm. he was going to have to, you know, but I think subconsciously have something in the tank to then do another hour or two hours of, of work at home. So, and then he, in, the, in the middle school, they've really gated down on the homework they used to give. So he'll have, you know, maybe an hour at the absolute most um, and, and I personally have seen so much benefit in his academia, in his self-confidence, pulling back on that homework that rather than, you know, burying them in it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, advocates in the United States, like uh, Al Ficon, for example, he's been writing, he's been writing about this uh, uh, homework issue and, and how little value it actually has um, and how much, how much Parents and many adults think that it does a positive things that it doesn't. Um, so the research research evidence is very clear that homework doesn't really uh, account too much of anything when it comes to the students' success or failure in a school. So it's not about that. It's exactly as you said. It's it's about you know finding a balance and understanding how the kids uh, children learn. I understand that you know there are some kids who probably benefit from. You know, having this regular rhythm at home that you, you know, t- take a half an hour, an hour, and just focus on your school stuff. But most most students um, don't really find it find it beneficial at all. And the schools, you know, schools would be place like in Finland, for example, where where most of the schools have the policy that that the students, pupils, should be able to complete whatever is required by the school next day or next week uh, while they're still. Uh, while they're still still in the school during the school day, rather than taking taking tasks and things uh, with them to be completed at home. Yeah, no, I, I agree a hundred percent. So I want to just cover kind of one main topic, and then we'll, we'll move to some closing questions. But a big thing that I talk about in this podcast is mental health as well. And I know it's not purely in the schools. Of course, there are all kinds of elements that contribute to this. But what are some kind of systems that we've seen where it appears to definitely nurture positive mental health in our schools? And what do you think are some of the contributing factors to to negative influences of mental health? Um, yeah, I think, you know, my, my first remark would be that most education systems, most countries that I know around the world uh, are just about now waking to to understand that mental health issue among young people is a huge thing and also realize that when there are more more children coming to school every day with the all kinds of um, uh, <clears throat> mental and psychological and social challenges that being successful in this situation is is getting very difficult OECD for example that is uh, regularly doing uh, comparisons of different countries is now increasingly focusing on, you know, looking at how different education systems are addressing the 
the health and well-being and particularly mental health of, of young people that indicates that it's becoming an important uh, important thing you know i don't i, I don't probably i'm, I'm i don't have a, in, enough information and knowledge right now exactly what countries are doing doing this well and um, and what is uh, what is happening in each and every education system i know very well what the nordic countries uh, have done and what they do and i can say one or two things about there but i i, I leave these two commentators from your listeners who are listening this um, this uh, conversation in in some other countries to to probably respond to you how things are done there but i think that what the, the traditionally what the nordic countries have done is that that we have had, we have had a, a, a long tradition to to uh, focus on what we call the whole child um, uh, development in in schooling. That means that that the school is not just looking at the academic or narrow academic uh, development of of children. In many cases referring to uh, reading and mathematics and science, but looking at children as a kind of a holistic uh, holistic ent- entities where of course the well-being uh, and health are extremely important uh, things so I I, <clears throat> I would argue that that all the Nordic countries have done a really good job including Iceland by the way Iceland is uh, is one of those advanced countries in this respect where the, the whole purpose of schooling is defined not just through the academic learning and performance but the overall ho- holistic healthy development of, of children including mental mental health that <clears throat> I, I think that those countries who have defined the purpose of schooling more broadly and the success of a school of or a individual student um, through the um, different types of characteristics of of learning and, and growth are and have certainly done a good job in in addressing um, addressing the mental health issues that have been increase increasing in Finland and Sweden and Norway and um, I guess most most countries around the world uh, right now. So this is a really has become an important issue. I know that there are countries that are doing doing wonderful things um, as well. But as I said, uh, I know I know the Nordic countries better than better than anything else my guess would be that as we move on and if the children's mental health issues continue to get worse as it may happen after this pandemic when we gradually return back to new new normal that it may be that the schools and education systems have to think about this issue even even more closely and more carefully than uh, than before, rather than asking children who are returning back to schools after the school and classroom closes to catch up and, and try to hurry up to make sure that nothing is lost, uh, rather than doing this, that I think the school, many schools and school systems probably will realize that it's more important to to rethink the school as a place where all these children who have been locked 
locked in their houses and spent weeks or months just with their parents and siblings will have a safe and secure and healthy environment in the school also to to make sure that their mental health um, will be good and get better if, if necessary. And again, I think that the countries will will be very different in in this respect. That they are they are probably education systems where where the narrative will be much more about uh, closing the gap that has been created by kids not being in the school and kind of a catching up. But then there will be school systems where that really understand how important uh, the health issue is and use school as a place to heal and make sure that, you know, no children and <coughs> and adults as well would significantly suffer from this uh, very difficult time that they are going through right now. Yeah, no, I agree 100%. I had an interesting conversation with um, my son's counselor. So he went he went through some... some uh, mental health problems either side of of christmas and it was definitely aligned with some trouble in his his mother's home i'm divorced now um which is now resolved which is fantastic but um the counselor called him a couple of times since this pandemic since school is closed and i asked her i'm like well what are you seeing you know confidentially what are you seeing with um some of the other kids that you normally saw in the school. And she said, actually, I'm seeing an improvement in mental health at the moment. And it's interesting because I had a couple of people that specialize in mental health with children. One one helps in a, a foster uh, system, and then one's a child psychologist. And they were talking about that social pressure and especially social media being a huge contributor to mental ill health with children. And right now they're taken away from having to look cool or, you know, whatever the pecking order is in their particular school. Um, so I hope that we glean lessons from that too, that, that we, like, as you said, encourage more about the whole holistic health of the child, but also kind of figure out ways where we can remove some of those elements that the social, some of the damage that social media seems to do in some of our children. Yeah. I think that when, when young people, eventually when they return back to school that they they probably value more than they did uh before this crisis the this uh, face-to-face uh, human relationship rather than using social media for that so it may may have a, some positive positive uh, consequences this uh, this uh, extremely difficult time we have yeah i hope so all right well i want to transition to some closing questions so i can let you go you've been so generous with your time today and i do appreciate it um the, no worries so before i ask you i'm gonna ask you about someone else's book so let's talk about your book first so the most recent one is let the children play which you did with william doyle so where can people find that yeah that that book is easy to find in north north america this is published by oxford university press and this should be widely available uh, certainly in, in amazon but probably also in the in the bookstores i'm not absolutely sure but the you know if you're amazon customer that's the easy uh, easy easy place to get it brilliant well i just want to say for everyone listening as well so to me it's it's the positive side of a double-edged sword so you've got the common sense like you said we shouldn't have to really prove that 
obesity is bad for children, but you also have all these studies, all these anecdotes, all these these stories and examples from around the world that really do substantiate and back up the things that you're talking about. So even if someone was questioning the value of play, for example, in schools or physical education or, you know, the recess times, not only is it is it told in a very uh, great storytelling uh, way, but you do have all these studies to back it up as well. So I highly advise anyone that's curious about this topic to to purchase the book. Thank you. Right. So then first closing question, is there another book that you love to recommend? It can be something to do with what we've discussed today or something completely different. <laughs> oh, um, what should I say? Uh, <laughs> that's a hard one. You know, I'm, I'm reading, I'm reading so much, uh, students, students works now that I haven't, um, uh, well, you, hmm. let me, let me, let me give you an answer that is a, is a not kind of a probably predictable because there's a lot of, there's a lot of literature, um, in the past that I often kind of refer to as important, important books for me. And there are some books, as you know, that, you know, some books come and go, people write them. Uh, I hope that the left to children play is not, not one of those. Uh, but then there are some of, some of those books that really remain and stay and people read it and find it more and more kind of accurate. And it's interesting that some of the books that have been written already long ago, only now will begin to kind of resonate uh, and people find it kind of a, the importance and essence of that. One of my my all time heroes, really, and and the, the 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 people who have really influenced my my thinking as a teacher and educator was the late uh, Seymour Saracen, who passed away already more than ten years ago. He was a Yale uh, pro- professor of educational psychology, a psychology for uh, basically all his life, and he published about forty five books. And many of his books were not really, they were widely read, but not, not, not that much understood. But one of the books, I would actually recommend to you to read any of the Seymour Saracen's books. Probably his most seminal work um, was the book that he wrote first in 1971, and then it was republished in 1996. It was the 25th anniversary of that edition. It's still a great book to read, and I I always recommend it to my students who are in the field of uh, improving education and understanding schools. Uh, it's the book is called uh, "The Culture of the School and the Problem of Change." That really is a book for those who wonder about the same things that I do, and it's a, basically the, where we started this conversation. That you know why. Why things, why the, why the schools and education systems don't really change, even if we try to do that, and uh, why some education systems change are able to um, make progress faster than others. But Seymour Sarazon really, in this kind of a book long story, is able to, you know, talk about those important things that are still are probably still more relevant than at the time when he was writing it the first time in 1971. So the culture of the school and the problem of change by Seymour, Seymour Saracen is, uh, is the book here that I would recommend to anybody in this field to read. 
Excellent. Well, thank you for that. It's definitely one I've never heard before, so I'll look that up myself. Um, what about a, a film? Are there any films that you love? Uh, yeah, I'm a film film freak. I've been disappointing disappointed by the by the films um, uh, coming about more more recently. I think what, what I try to say is that I, I less and less frequently really find see a kind of a good film that really stops me. The other day, you know, the, my all time favorite film is uh, Martin Scorsese's uh, Taxi Driver. Um, I, I remember I wrote a number of essays about that film when I was a high school student. Uh, I, I think I even wrote an, uh, my my exam paper uh, in high school about that film. Uh, and I just saw that a couple of nights ago here in Australia on TV. Um, and that's that's one of those films. I, li- I love the music. I love the whole story. And, of course, uh, Robert De Niro as a young young uh, actor there in the very early part of his career does a brilliant phenomenal uh, part as a, as a taxi driver but I, I I like the hidden message in that Scorsese's storytelling from New York New York City it's a story about the New York City and the beauty and the the kind of ugly side of the city but also uh, also the time in the 1970s of people disturbed by many things in a society um, uh, through this character uh, the taxi driver and and there's everything I think for me it's a, it's a kind of a pure package of art and storytelling that he's able to do in a in a in a beautiful uh, beautiful style I can watch the film again and again um, uh, you know regardless of the some of the violence that is there at the end of the film uh, I, I think it's a, it's a beautiful story New York has a special place for me because you know anything about New York City because of my my grand it was my grandfather's uh, home for a while uh, it, it kind of resonates in my somehow in my DNA I don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant! Did you ever see the new um, film they made, The Joker? No, I know the film, I, I, and many people have said positive things about that, but I haven't seen that. Yeah, I think that's another. I would parallel that with Tax Drive. Not saying it's the same kind of film, but again, it's it's taking this you know this this comic style character, but putting such a human element on it. And, and you probably find it fascinating because there's there's childhood trauma involved, and this is you know this is the path it took because it was never addressed and there's a systemic problem with what makes him worse so very very deep psychological film yeah, much much more depth than you think of a normal superhero movie all right good all right so then what about uh, documentaries have you seen any documentaries that interested you uh yes um do you want to want to have like one example of a documentary? Yes, yeah, one or two, whatever, whatever you want to suggest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I watched the um, I watched a new one that was uh, in um, available in YouTube. I, st- I think it still is there. That was uh, about the the. It's called the the planet the planet of the humans or something like this. It's a new discrete about the critical view of the green green energy movements. Um, uh, and I, I watched it because there was a lot of media a couple of weeks ago about <clears throat> about the film, how it's critical about the things that people should not criticize. I mean, the renewable energy and those things. I think it's an interesting, interesting piece of work. It's not on the kind of a top list of my 
uh, my documentaries. But one of the documentaries that is really something that I probably will never forget is the is, is called uh, Search Search for Sugarman. Uh, I don't know if you have heard about it. It's, it's about the South African artist, uh, singer and songwriter called Rodriguez. It's a Swedish guy who made the film about 10 years ago, something like that. So he found this uh, South African singer called Rodriguez that everybody thought was dead. And he was able to uh, follow the trace and locate this older singer now in Detroit, New York. It's a beautiful story. It's, a, it's amazing it's actually unbelievable documentary about the thing that can happen if you if you're sensitive to good stories that are around um so i i recommend that to to anybody uh, i think it's a searching for superman or something like this but it's a, it's a documentary film about south african singer called rodriguez a beautiful story Brilliant. I will look that up. I've genuinely watched so many of the documentaries that people suggest. Cause like you, you know, I'm 46 now. So it's not that often that a brand new movie is made with a great script and it's something different than, you know, you and I watched when we were 20 or 30. So, but the documentaries with the true stories, I, I tend up, I tend to watch so many more of those now. So I'll, I'll definitely let that up. Thank you for the suggestion. All right. So then next question. Is there a person that you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military and associated professions of the world? Right. If you can, if you can get Richard Branson now, that would be, he would be great. I, I know him a little bit. I was on his island a couple of times in the Caribbean and he, he's, he will be hard. He will be hard. Uh, hard to get, but I, I I don't know. You know, I'm I'm more and more the older I get, I'm more and more trying to uh, find places for young people to speak. So I would I would definitely, uh, you know, if, even even having an unknown young person, uh, and and you have a you have a wonderful young people there in Florida, some people who would kind of see the future in a positive way. Um, I know that the uh, these uh, horrible school uh, shootings there in, in Florida triggered a movement of young people who want to um, um, who want to lead the way and uh, try to do good things. You know, if you if you can if you haven't had any any young people there, uh, really like young youngsters, uh, high schoolers or or, or students, um, try to find somebody and and give give her or him a voice. Um, and just, you know, talk about these things. That would be wonderful. I would definitely lis- listen to that story. Yes. No, absolutely. That's a great idea. And actually, funny you say that. My son has been on the show, my stepson and my wife. So different times and different questions. <laughs> but, but yeah, my son <laughs> and my stepson were both involved in a code red where they thought they had a shooter in their school. So, you know, it's interesting okay. hearing that. But but the Parkland shooting that we had in Florida, yeah, that's absolutely right. I think that would be a a great conversation with someone that was, you know, either still at school or, or maybe has just graduated now, but it was around that time. Cause yeah, I mean, I, I hate the fact that our children have to know a drill that involves hiding in the dark under a desk because someone's trying to murder them. That, that disturbs me so much. I want to say thank you so much for being so generous. I know that we've gone, you know, past the 90 minutes. Um, I want to make sure that everyone knows how to find you online and, and how to reach out to you if they want to on social media or the internet. So what's the best place for people to find you? 
the best place, I have my own website. It's called www.bassysalberg.com. Uh, I'm not extremely active there, but there's a lot of stuff about my writings and uh, my speeches and uh, some other stuff. This will be there. Your your podcast will be there for sure. Um, or you can follow me in, in social media and Twitter. Uh, it's uh, Pussy underscore Salberg. Um, easy to find. There's only one person, as uh, as I know it, that has exactly the same name as I do. So just Google me and it comes to me. So I'm very happy to have happy to have a chat or, or conversation with you if you uh, if you're interested in. Brilliant. Well, again, thank you so so much. This is something that I've, you know, a conversation I want to have for a long time because you have been out there, t- you know, teaching the world about some solutions to some of the problems that we have. So I just truly appreciate you being so generous, and um, you know, thank you so much for for telling your story. Thank you very much for giving me this space uh, and opportunity to have conversation. You're doing great things. You're part of the change and, you know, keep it that way. Stay safe and uh, spread the word. 